1: Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. Today's episode is brought to you by Impact 360 Institute, who create life-changing experiences for students, including a nine-month gap year program. Go to impact360.org to learn more. Well, I am so excited to bring you this conversation today with my friend Shane Rosenthal, a.k.a. The Humble Skeptic. That is the title of his brand new podcast. You might remember him from the White Horse Inn podcast, a great resource. They dive really deep into church history, the church fathers. And Shane has now set out on his own to uh, just with this new venture of the Humble Skeptic podcast, where he argues that Christians biblically are actually commanded to be a little bit skeptical. Well, how does that interact with faith? We had a really great conversation. Uh, The parts of it that really stood out to me are, when he talked about what the Bible is talking about when it says the word faith. He goes into the Greek and even what that Greek word meant to the surrounding culture. This is a very common word that was used quite a bit, even uh, talking about what Aristotle meant when he was talking about it and why that's relevant for us as Christians to understand how that word was used in culture, because when we read about it in our Bibles, we can tend to impose a modern definition on to that word, but we need to understand what they were talking about when they wrote it down to begin with. So really fascinating conversation. Shane is so wise and knowledgeable in so many things. So I'm really excited for you to get to hear that. Uh, Don't forget to go to unshakenconference.com. My friend Natasha Crane and Frank Turek and I are going to be coming to the Southern California area on May 6th at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills for our unshaken conference. And also guys, I'm so excited to uh, announce to you another location, September 23rd. If you're anywhere in the Tucson or Phoenix area. We're going to be at Calvary Tucson on September 23rd with our Unshaken Conference. That's Calvary Tucson. You can go to unshakenconference.com to register for both of those events. And then fairly soon, we'll open up the registration for our uh, November 4th date in the Nashville area at Brentwood Baptist. So excited. Don't forget to subscribe to the Unshaken Faith podcast, where Natasha Crane and I bring you weekly 15-minute uh, equipping podcasts about cultural topics and how we can stand firm as Christians in a chaotic culture. Now, I do want to let you know a few places I'm going to be coming up soon. On the 15th of March, I am going to be in Albany, Georgia at the Christian Worldview Film Festival. On April 1st, I'll be in Cordova, Tennessee at Bellevue Baptist Church. And then how many of you are going to the D6 conference in Florida? That's happening on April 10th, 11th, and 12th. I'll be speaking at that in Orlando, Florida. Really looking forward to the D6 conference. All right, without any further ado, can't wait for you to hear this great conversation I had with Shane Rosenthal. All right, well, Shane, it's so great to have you on the show today. Um, I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about your story because you have an interesting journey to faith, so to speak. So what did that look like for you?
0: Well, see, I was raised in a kind of secular Jewish home. Um, there were times when we were going to Shabbat services, you know, once a week, but that was, uh, you know, not not the majority of my childhood. But uh, at, you know, I, and I was bar mitzvah at age thirteen. Studied Hebrew, you know, a couple days a week. I'm going to Hebrew school in preparation for that. And by the third grade or so, I kind of began. Um, talking with friends that i thought the whole thing was a joke and it was made up and the bible was um you know not something to take seriously uh so i i was basically an atheist though i didn't articulate that really in using that language but um i did i didn't really think that religion was really of any value it was just something you do as a you know it's part of your family and we were we identified as those who don't Celebrate Christmas, <laughs> or don't mm-hmm. believe in Jesus, and uh, but something happened to me later on. Maybe so, just out of the, out of high school or so, I began um, meeting people at work and began attending classes where uh, at college where um, religious questions are coming to mind. I'm reading on uh, on these topics, and I stumbled across um, a few messianic prophecies that uh, made me begin to question the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And in particular, uh, Micah 5.2 was one of the big ones. Uh, out of Bethlehem shall come uh, the, the one who is whose origins are from everlasting. Uh, Isaiah 53, also very, very in, influential in my conversion. Uh, this is the famous passage about the suffering servant and man I just I had never heard about a Messiah That's something that contemporary Jewish um, thinking and theology is not really focused on the Messiah there are a lot of different versions of Messianic Jews um there are some Messianic Jews who are Christians others are uh, those who believe in um, the coming Messiah he still hasn't come yet and there are still yet others who believe he did come but he was somebody else other than Jesus mm. and but all those versions of Judaism today are, great minority of most, uh, Jewish theology. And so, um, when I began to, you know, think through these issues and start to uh, notice these messianic prophecies, I talked to some rabbis and had some fascinating conversations with them. And, uh, one of the questions I had was like, you know, it says in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and feet. What, what do you do? What are we, what are we to do with this? And the Mm. rabbi I remember said, Well, I don't know. Maybe it's bows and arrows. (laughs) Wow! So I wasn't convinced by his argumentation. He did give me some things to think about, gave me books to read, but it started me on a journey that ended up in my conversion to the Christian faith.
1: Wow. That's so cool. And you've just started a new ministry, a new podcast and website. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of what your aim is in uh, this new venture.
0: So I was the producer of a, a program called the White Horse Inn for 30 years, and for three of those years recently, I've served as the host. But I recently decided to, to sort of venture out on my own to, so I could have full creative control and to kind of have um, a little bit more um, broad appeal, I guess is what I would say. I would like to reach out beyond the Christian world and to mm-hmm. uh, ask questions and interact with people from a wide variety of uh, backgrounds anywhere on that spectrum of religion and spirituality. And so, um, I, I titled the program, the humble skeptic podcast. And one of the reasons for doing that is because I I actually think that skepticism is encouraged in the Bible. Um, Mm. a hearty, a healthy skepticism, um, you know, you can go too far with skepticism, but you can go too far with faith. You know, if you're an easy believer, um, you could be gullible. In fact, the Bible actually says that this, you know, it warns us in Proverbs 14 that the simple man believes everything mm-hmm. and the thoughtful man uh, or the wise man gives thought to his steps. And when I sort of look through, or if you think of the New Testament, you know, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. In other words, we should be skeptical of those who claim to speak for God. Um, because there are many false prophets, and those right. categories go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. You know that we shouldn't just believe every prophet, but only those who speak in a way that connects with what Moses has already delivered, and then also who can declare the future before it happens. In other words, there's there's something in the way that the biblical narrative has been laid down, in which it's already comparing uh, the this word with the events of the real world. It has to be true. It's not just something you believe internally and subjectively. And so I, I just wanted to kind of explore those issues. You compare Christian theology with other views. Why are we Christians compared to what Mormons believe or Hindus or Jews or uh, secularists? And then, you know, uh, I, I will uh, try to make a case for my view in that space.
1: Yeah. Well, and also just to give a little plug for White Horse Inn, you know, there's so much great content in the back, uh, you know, backlog of White Horse Inn. Uh, Of course, I've been on that that show a couple of times with you. And um, just, you know, what I love about it is it goes really deep into a lot of like, church history kind of topics, mm-hmm. very knowledgeable about all of that. So, you know, that's just a great resource for everybody to know about. But I am very excited about this new venture you've got going on. You mentioned that you, uh, as part of your research for this, you interviewed over 100 Christians at cr- church events, megachurches, festivals, concerts, different places. And you asked them, why are you a Christian, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah. And then w- yeah. you were kind of surprised at your answers. Tell us about the kinds of answers that you got. And then I'm going to tell a story too about, I've done some classes with young people and asked them the same questions like in Christian scenarios. And it's very interesting the answers people get to that question.
0: So when I, uh, did this recently, uh, just a few months ago now, um, and which and I'm currently in a series on my show where I'm, you know, evaluating the answers and talking to theologians and, uh, uh, hosts about uh, these topics, uh, wh- the answers that I mostly got were that faith is something that you can't really explain. You can't give proofs. You just know in your heart that it's true. You feel it in your heart that it's true. It's a blind kind of thing. And so it, the the majority of the, the overwhelming majority, and I interviewed about a hundred people, uh, the overwhelming majority of Christians. At these events, thought that faith is a blind leap, and it's not something you can, um, you can really wrap your head around. It's not really cognitive; it's a, it's mm-hmm. more of a feeling inside, and it's subjective.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting because uh, before I was doing a lot of podcasting and videos and things, I would do apologetic series with youth groups. And even at at a Christian school, I would come and visit once a year and do their kind of creation science kickoff. And I would always start that, especially with the Christian school, I would go to the chalkboard, the whiteboard, and I would say, all right, how many of you are Christians? And then, you know, most would raise their hand and I'd say, okay, tell me why you're a Christian. And as they would give their answers, I would write them on the board. And every time I did this, Shane, it was like, um, because my parents are Christians, right. or it would be because God, you know, had some kind of an experience. So, you know, right. I I was in a worship service and I could feel God's presence or something like that. Um a- another one, another common one was that it's, you know, I've seen it change people's lives, things like that. Which, you know, these are all these are not like invalid reasons, but one thing I would always point out to them is I would point at every single reason I said, now listen, a Mormon or a Jehovah's witness or even a muslim could give all of these same reasons and these are yep. not bad reasons these are not invalid like this this is real right but but what makes what you believe true versus what they believe cuz they cuz what we believe and what muslims believe and mormons believe about the nature of god are in contradiction like they contradict each other so how do you know you're right and they're wrong cuz you can't both be right considering yep. that they would give these same reasons and I always thought because their their minds were just like blown like what wow you know they had never really thought about faith from the perspective of that it's something that involves your reason it's something that involves evidence. And so let's talk about faith a little bit, because I also think you, I think you characterized it well that a lot of Christians think that faith is just kind of like a feeling that happens yeah. in your in your soul or in your spirit. But I think also there are people who think that faith is almost like a force you wield to, to make things happen, right? I think uh-huh. that can be a false definition of faith. Of course, famously, Richard Dawkins and other skeptics have defined faith as believing something even when there's no evidence or even... Uh, even when there's evidence against it, you believe it anyway. And that's really how atheists define faith. But what is faith? What's biblical faith?
0: Yeah, um, it, it does involve both the heart and the mind. So we don't want to say that uh, there aren't any um, emotional responses to faith. But the, I guess the, the traditional uh, approach, by the way, you just mentioned Richard Dawkins. One of the things that fascinated me was that... Um, I, I on a recent podcast I aired some of the those kind of quotes from Richard Dawkins and others Neil deGrasse, deGrasse Tyson and mm-hmm. people who were arguing that faith is believing something on the absence of evidence. And then what I found was in my conversations with a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians had that same definition of faith. Right. Right. That at some point you you the evidence will only get you so far, and then you you have to you can't just you can't just prove it otherwise it's it stops to be faith and it becomes proof in other words they're in their imagination they're thinking faith was that leap where you don't have evidence mm-hmm. and so that's something that i think we should explore is have we misunderstood faith so one of the things i've been doing is just sort of walking through with my audience what is the the biblical definition of faith and first of all i mean even if you go to like the just the, looking at the english definition of the word uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, you see that faith is not the believing in something in the absence of evidence. Even the, the, in the English word, it means believing something on the basis of evidence. And you, know, you have uh, writers, the list, here are the writers who use the, the word faith in this way. One that I looked up was uh, the author of a logic book who said, you know, there's the evidence of faith, the evidence of testimony. This is believing on the basis of someone else's word. So if you believe um, the report, an eyewitness report, uh, then that takes faith. It takes trust. And that's basically what the English word uh, or, the, or the Greek word means, the one that's used in the Bible. It's the same as the word trust. So the question is, why do you trust someone? Um, and obviously, when when you and I think about the way we trust a babysitter, a financial advisor. Um, why do we trust anything? Well, there's usually a good reason to do so. We don't give our money to someone off the street who says, I'll invest for you wisely because we don't know anything right. about that person. Right. We trust a doctor because they went to school. We trust the babysitter because we've had experience with that person. Um, so it, it's never a blind leap to give your child to a babysitter or to your money to a financial advisor. It's based on knowledge. And that knowledge um, is is something that is at the heart of why we trust. So faith in the biblical sense, in fact, when I looked this word up, I saw the word in Greek is pistis. I, I looked at this up and it's the Aristotle actually used this word often as uh, to talk about um, surety. Like you can have sure conviction because of evidence. Um, and sometimes it's even the word used for collateral. Like I'm gonna give you this Wealthy, this expensive thing, to give you trust that I will come back and do the thing that I say that I will do. Um, it's it's proof. It's tr- that you can have confidence. That's a, that's another good word, way to define it. Confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. And so I think I think what had happened in the Western world is that over the years, as the Western world was Christianized. We stopped having to make our case and to stop having to give reasons because everybody in Europe uh, was Christian already. And um, now that uh, the Western world is becoming de-Christianized, we really have got to go back to the biblical sources and also to church history to see. Let's evaluate different times when people really understood these things better. Because right now we're if we live in a pluralistic culture uh, where there are a lot of people who use this word faith, but they use it in a different way. Well, again, like you mentioned, we can't all be right. Who's right? The Mormon leap, the Muslim leap, you know, the Hindu leap. And so we have to have a reason that um, to give, a, to, we need to give reasons to, for the hope that is within us. It's different from all these other answers. right? And right. I think the Bible does that for us really well when we look at it closely.
1: I want to tell you about our first sponsor, Good Ranchers. You guys, I love Good Ranchers. This is American meat delivered right to your door. I have right now in my freezer uh, grass-fed, American-born, raised, and harvested steaks and ground beef. I have better than organic chicken. This is pastured chicken. When you buy chicken in the store, typically the organic label, the standards have lowered so much that that really just has to do with what the chickens ate throughout their lives. But this is better than... organic, and that these are pastured chickens. It's better than the stuff you're getting at the store. And I tell you, it is so delicious. And guys, the chicken is triple trimmed, which means you don't have to sit there doing all this prep work. You can just pull it out of the freezer, thaw it out, cook it up. And it's so great. Makes it so easy when I think about what to make uh, for dinner for my family. So March is a great month to subscribe to Good Ranchers because if you subscribe in this month of month of March, you're going to get free bacon for a year. That comes with every subscription. So that's 24 ounces of applewood smoked bacon, and that's going to be uh, added to each box for a whole year. Uh, this is 100% American, high-quality bacon sourced from local farms. And uh, this offer isn't going to last forever, so you really should act now before it's on. Now, you can also get $20 off your subscription, uh, or I should say $20 off your first box if you use the code Alisa. So go to goodranchers.com, use the coupon code Alisa. You're going to get a year of free bacon, and you're going to get uh, $20 off your first box. And here's here's the great thing, too. When you subscribe, you get their price lock guarantee, so your price stays the same as long as you're subscribed. They're never going to raise that price on you. So take advantage of that. This Good March, go to <clears throat> goodranchers.com and use the code Alisa. Yeah, and so just for the sake of our audience and our listeners and viewers here, you brought up Aristotle. Somebody might be wondering: well, why does it matter how Aristotle used the word pistis, you know, and then the Bible uses it? Um, and and I think this might be a good opportunity for us to explain, you know. When we look at words that show up in the Bible, a lot of times you look out into other, you know, other places to see how, you know, if we're translating something into English, for example, today, you'd want to know what the word means to the general world to be able to translate it right for them to understand what the word actually means. And so maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Like, why does it matter how people like Aristotle or others, because Aristotle obviously lived before Christ. It's not like he was a Christian and he certainly wasn't Jewish. So why does it matter what, what he thought the word pistis means?
0: Because the word faith, in the, in, as it's used in the ancient world, is not a particularly religious word. Paul oh and Jesus and all these people who are mentioning faith were not inventing a new word with a religious right. sensibility. It's just a word that was commonly used in Greek. So whether you're looking at Aristotle or uh, countless other Greek authors, they're using this same word that Paul and others are using. And it's just the ordinary word for trust. It's not this sort of like one of the answers that I got on the on the street interviews that I recorded was it the that faith is a kind of spiritual sixth sense. It's something that you know in your spirit, not by means of the physical senses. Well, that is definitely not what the New Testament authors mean by faith, and that's why I wanna I want to go back and say, okay, they're using this Greek word. What did this Greek word mean in that original audience?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's great, and I do want to get into a, the church history pu- uh, piece of the puzzle here a little bit, but also I. You know, one of the ways I like to look at this too is we think about faith as being a trust or even more specifically like an active trust because mm-hmm. the Bible even says that demons believe and shudder. So demons believe yeah. the right things, correct things about God. They know what is true about the nature of Jesus. They know that Jesus is God. They know that Jesus is, you know, fully God, fully human. They know that he died on the cross for our sins. He they, you know, demons know all of these things are true but they're not saved, right? And so you think about what's the what's the difference between that and maybe me believing those things and and having faith in Christ. And so I like to think about it like this. Um and I actually got this analogy from Greg Kokel. And it's like, you know, when I go and speak somewhere, I have to get on an airplane to get there typically. And it's one thing for me to believe that the airplane will get me to my destination, that the uh, pilots are trained, that the engineers, you know, built, you know, designed the thing correctly, that it was built properly, that it's been maintained properly, that everybody's doing their jobs. I mean, there's you're actually putting trust in a whole lot of different things. Yes, you but are. it's one thing for me to believe that it will get me to my destination safely. But I haven't really put trust in that Belief until I put my body on the plane, and so it's. I, I think that's a helpful way to think about it as Christians is, is that it's not a blind leap. Nobody gets on an airplane because they're stupid. Nobody gets on an airplane because they think, well, you know, it's just a blind leap. I just. I hope it all works out. I feel like this is a good idea. Nobody does that. Everybody exercises faith when they get onto an airplane, but they're doing so from a very reasonable position. There's a lot of good. Re- is it a guarantee? no i mean there have been malfunctions there have been airplanes that have crashed certainly but you're putting reasonable trust in the fact that that plane's going to get you to your destination so that might be a helpful way to think about it feel free to comment on that but also take us through church history a little bit and how some of yeah. the earlier church fathers uh thought about the issue of faith
0: so um one of the things that um that i mean think about this like if if you're if you're watching the news and every um week or so there's a you know a, a crash of a commercial airliner uh that may erode our confidence in um in and our trust and our faith in in traveling via via <laughs> getting on an airplane right right so uh but i guess the the classical definition for faith and you started with the uh issues of whether demons believe and why aren't they saved well um traditionally faith is sort of defined as knowledge, assent and trust. So there's got to be something, you know, uh, and yet we're not saved by knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and assent is you have to know that it's true. So I can't I, I can know about Atlantis, but I don't know that it's true. I just know about it. But then there's knowing that, um, you know, if I found um, historical archaeological evidence for Atlantis, then I could maybe know that it's true. Um, but then there's the third element of, which is it's mind and heart together. It's knowing something like a financial advisor or a babysitter, knowing that they are reliable, not just knowing about them, but knowing mm-hmm. that they are, uh, extremely careful with money and children. And then there's the actually trusting them with my money or my children. So I'm actually giving them my money. And one of the analogies that I give is, uh, I went to a doctor some years ago with a side ache and the doctor said, okay, you've got an issue with, um, improperly functioning, um, gut. And he gave me some medicine. I, I trusted him so much that I swallowed the medicine, but it didn't help. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I went to another doctor and he said, okay, what you have is an improperly functioning gallbladder. Um, after doing some tests, further tests. And, uh, when I had my gallbladder removed, my pain went away. Mm. So we, we need to have more than just knowledge in the and trust we and and faith, we actually have to have faith in the right thing. The object of our faith is just as important, if not more important than our faith. Now, I I think about like you can't get from um, Nashville to Los Angeles without having faith because your faith wouldn't get you on the plane. But the plane also has to be objectively reliable. And, you know, that's all the mechanics have to have worked on it in the same way. Like I, I have, I had faith in my doctor. I swallowed the medicine, but it didn't help because it was a wrong diagnosis. So our subjective experience of faith needs to line up with the object of our faith, That's and it. this is why uh, Paul will say, if our faith, if Christ isn't risen, our faith is in vain. The object of our faith has to be true, and he was arguing that it was. And if you look at that famous passage in First Corinthians fifteen, he gives two main reasons. Number one, this was seen by eyewitnesses his resurrection, death, burial, and is also seen in advance by the Hebrew prophets. That's
1: right. According you're talking about that creed in 1 Corinthians, that uh, First Corinthians 15. That early
0: Christian creed. Three
1: through five, which is fascinating to me uh, because, of course, we've talked about that creed a bunch on this podcast, but its I just get excited every time I think about that creed because you're right. With There's like two theological beliefs in that creed, that Christ died for our sins, and then there's two lines of evidence. There's scriptural, yeah. which is the prophecies, And then there's evidence from reality that he was buried is the evidence that he was actually dead. You don't bury living people, right? And then that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, two lines of evidence, and then the eyewitnesses, Um, which is, you know, I mean, if people want to know whether or not Christian faith is just based on some sort of inner feeling, look at that creed. That creed gives you two lines of evidence for every theological belief that's listed in it. Which is and they're also
0: not not just ordinary witnesses. Some of them are hostile witnesses. Paul himself right. was a hostile witness, so was that's James. Right. James is mentioned in that as well. James is the brother of Jesus. And we actually know that he became a strong believer because Josephus tells us this. He that's became right. a strong believer. He was one of the leaders in the early church, was martyred for his faith. Now think about this. Would you believe in the messianic identity of your own sibling? That would take a lot for me. Yeah. And now, now it's one step further to say. That you were martyred for that faith, so you to the, you went to your death, and so we know this from both the New Testament because he writes letters in the New Testament epistles. Uh, he has a he has a, a a letter in the New Testament documents, and then we also know from the Book of Acts his role in the early church. But we also know from from Josephus that he was martyred for the faith. It's that's so yeah. It's hostile yeah. witnesses. Some, something changed James's mind that has to be explained.
1: Yeah, that's right. All right, let's take us through church history a little bit. Like, how did people like Augustine and others approach the topic of faith?
0: So I recently, um, you know, was preparing a lecture on this topic, and I started with Justin Martyr and, you know, in his dialogue with, uh, you know, the Jew, Trifo, and he was making—actually, no, it was in his apology to the emperor, and he was making the claim that, you know, um, we know this is certain and true— that language actually comes up in in the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus. You can have Mm. certainty of these Mm -hmm. things, certainty. So, and what's the basis? Well, it's because he's developed an orderly account, an orderly report of all the eyewitness testimony. He doesn't appeal to internal subjective feelings. And same with Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was appealing to uh, the way that the prophets of the Old Testament had foreseen what was to come. Um, And he mentions the... uh, the explosive growth of the Christian faith, um, among the, which was Jewish belief among Gentiles, which was prophesied and how it prophesied of the coming Messiah and of the destruction of Jerusalem. And therefore we can know this for certain. Augustine says something very similar in his, uh, letter to, I think it's Faustus, the Manichaean, um, nerdy kind of, uh, knowledge that I have about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what oh, I do. I spend my I time looking it. at these weird documents. Yeah, now, yeah. My favorite, though, is a guy named Eusebius. Some of your listeners might be familiar with his church mm-hmm. history. Eusebius wrote a book called The Proof of the Gospel. Now, this was something that a lot of the people that I interviewed recently just didn't think that proof and faith go together. You can't prove faith. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. But that's precisely what Paul was trying to do in the book of Acts, reasoning, right. persuading, making arguments in the synagogues that Jesus had died and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And that's what that the entire book by Eusebius is doing just that, walking through all the messianic prophecies. And he actually says, you know, it's our opponents that criticize us for believing blindly. But no, the, this book is trying to demonstrate that this is a trustworthy and reasonable faith.
1: Well, I want to tell you about our next sponsor, Impact 360 Institute. Guys, Impact 360 is a ministry that I have been partnering with for years. For years, I've dri- I'll have i drive up to beautiful Pine Mountain, Georgia, to help teach the students that come for the summer experiences of Propel and Immersion. And then I also just got back from two days of intense. Intensive teaching with the fellows of their nine month gap year program. Guys, I love going up there so much because Impact 360 not only equips students with great apologetics training and theology training, but they do discipleship and community, really helping equip this generation that's really the first generation that's growing up in a completely post Christian and post truth culture. So if you have a student in your life, or if you're a student and you're thinking about taking a gap year, before you go to college, I can't recommend Impact360 highly enough. Now, for for those of you who are looking for a summer camp experience, uh, Impact360 has Propel, which is a one-week experience, and then they have Immersion, which is a two-week experience. Now, for this summer, Immersion is already full. They're on a wait list. I would recommend if you want that one, you need to go get on that wait list or register for next year as soon as possible. But guys, there are still spots available for Propel for this summer. That's the week-long experience I will be there. I love getting to go to Propel and spending a day with the students there and just watching all of the fun activities they get to do, all of the great things they learn, and uh, just what a great formative experience that is. So go to impact360.org. Check out the summer experiences. Check out the nine-month gap year program. Again, that's impact360.org. That's right. In fact, I quoted the um, from Augustine in his letter to Faustus about the reliability of the, the gospel. Was it the gospel of Matthew he was writing about specifically? But he was defending the, the reliability of it and the historicity of it to yeah. Faustus, which is so interesting. And I've said this before on the podcast, but I'll just—two resources I want to mention to our audience just before we move on. Uh, you are offering a free— Uh, resource on faith that we're going to put into the show notes. Um, This is just a phenomenal document. It's got so much great information in it. Um, And also another resource I want to mention to everyone is on Kindle. You can get the uh, Anti-Nicene, Nicene, Nicene, and Post-Nicene Church Fathers Collection for $3, you guys. This is like millions of words for $3. You can go read Justin Martyr's letter uh, to Trifo. You can read his letter to the Emperor. You can read Augustine's letter to Faustus. You can read all this you stuff too for can yourself. be a nerd like us. You can be a nerd <laughs> like us, which is super fun because nerds are the best. But no, honestly, I just I I've said this before, but some of the most exciting material I've ever read yeah. is some of that early church father um, stuff. Where you know I was I, I admit this I was kind of nervous to read it because I thought, well, hmm. this was back when my faith was in crisis. Am I going to discover hmm. that the faith I've believed my whole life is something completely different than it was originally? Um, and of course there there were some things I corrected in my own thinking and my own, uh, right. you know, theology uh, when I read when God rebuilt my faith. But going back and reading just the heart of what so many of these guys were saying, it's like, no, no, this is the same faith. I th- th- this is have my brother Augustine.
0: Yeah, have you ever run across C.S. Lewis's uh, little short essay on why read the classics? I think it's in his, I, I it's in God God in the Dock. And he, so you you should dust that off and and look it up. He he talks about the fact that uh, for every modern book that you read, you should read two classic texts from, you know, further back in church history. And the reason he says is you need to keep the clean sea breeze, the clear teaching of the ages in your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Too often the people of our age reflect the assumptions of our time, even if they're on different sides of of a particular theological debate or tradition or denomination, but that sort of ancient... Uh, idea that what the church has been saying across the ages is that sort of anchor for what Christians, who they are and what they believe.
1: That's right. That's right. Okay, very good. So faith is a trust. It's not just belief that, but it's trust in. That's also maybe yep. a helpful way for people to think yes, about it, is. it. But it's not absent of evidence. It is it's not a blind leap in the dark. You're not jumping off a cliff into, you know, just trusting your following your heart. In fact, we would say don't follow your heart. That's your heart's probably wrong about a lot of things. There's
0: a line uh, in Deuteronomy that says don't do that. Don't follow your heart.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The heart is is not uh, what is it? say are, it, there's insanity deceitful. in Ecclesiastes, I think it says there's insanity in the hearts of yep. men um, right. and our hearts are deceitful and wicked. So um, that that's just fascinating stuff. So uh, in your PDF document that we're going to put into the show notes here, you talk a little bit about science and faith and kind of the mm. relationship between that. Talk about that a little bit and maybe some misunderstandings that people have when it comes to things like science and faith.
0: Yeah, that's um, something I think I'll be exploring in its own episode, but uh, I've interacted with some scientists uh, who, you know, some of them will say, like Neil deGrasse Tyson's a good example of this. He kind of follows that new atheist line that faith is believing something without evidence. But that's the newer definition that, again, as you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it's a relatively new definition that comes around in the 1800s or so, um, and some scientists are aware that uh, one of the guys that I played a clip from recently was uh, Paul, John- oh, no, Paul Johnson. Um, what's his name? Oh, Paul Davies. Davies, And Paul yeah. Davies is a physicist from U- University of Arizona. And he, um, he talks about the fact that faith, it, you, know, you can't be a scientist if you don't have faith because every scientist has this, this sort of assumption that our minds are able to comprehend the universe and that there's a regularity to the universe, that tomorrow the the law of gravity will be the same as it is today. And when he talks about this, he says, I'm not using faith in the sense of believing something without evidence. I'm using the sense in in that it's an assured confidence or a trust. In other words, he's saying, I'm not using faith according to its recent definition, but according to its older definition. And I think that's fascinating. So um, this is something that uh, another guy I interviewed, John Dixon made a point he made on one of my interviews. He said that, you know, someone like Richard Dawkins trusts the scientific work of others. He doesn't actually, right. uh, do all the scientific research, um, uh, that is, that needs to be done. Uh, he doesn't look at every, redo all the scientific work that others are claiming and look, at the cell That's in the right. microscope to see if it's true. He trusts the scientific reports of others. So in my document, What is Faith? What I also do is I interact with Max Planck, uh, the guy who invents quantum physics. And he was making the same point in his book uh, that he wrote in like the 20s or so, that you, can, you it totally undoes science itself if you eliminate faith and trust in other scientists. Uh, so we can't all that well, we we would that would undo science if we were all sort of only able to trust what we ourselves, um, you know, can look in a microscope. But you know that's also to beg the question. We still have to have trust there too. We have to trust our own faculties. We have to trust our that's own right. sense a sensory experience, and that we are, um, you know, rational and reasonably made.
1: That's right. And I've heard it said even, uh, you know. It- we all trust E equals MC squared, but exactly. like, have you ever <laughs> double-checked
0: that? Have you ever calculated that, <laughs> that yourself?
1: <laughs> no, I haven't. I wouldn't, I guarantee you, I would not be capable of doing that. And most people have not, and right. yet they trust it. Well, that's a good question to ask people. Why do you trust that? Why do you trust that yep. that's accurate? Have you, you know, double-checked that and solved that for yourself? And most people haven't, right? So there, there are right. trusting the work of other people. You mentioned Paul Davies. I'm re, um, I pulled up. A wonderful book that I don't know if you've read this book, but I, I recommend it. It's actually uh, written by a Catholic philosopher named Ed Fazer called uh, The Last Superstition. And mm-hmm. it's a refutation of the new atheists. And he talks about Paul Davies, but then he goes into talking about John Searle. And he says, John Searle tells us that materialism, which for our listening audience is the idea that nothing exists except uh, matter and its movements and modifications. Um, materialism is the religion. Of our time. So he's calling it a religion. And he says, uh, it's more like traditional religions. It's accepted without question and provides the framework within which other questions can be posed, addressed, and answered. And that materialists are convinced with a quasi-religious faith that their view must be right and uh, And then he kind of documents a, a lot of these secular scientists and physicists who are basically admitting that there is an element of a faith or a pre- sort of a pre- presupposition that you you put faith in a presupposition. And uh, it all comes down to philosophy, right? So scientists are analyzing evidence, they come to conclusions. But it's kind of like our friend Frank Turek says in the most simple way, science doesn't say anything, scientists do, right? Because they have to use philosophy to analyze the evidence. That's why two different scientists can have the same data and come to two totally different conclusions because they have to use philosophy to do that. And you can't prove um, philosophical presuppositions in a lab. So their whole idea that, you know, science is how you know everything is false because you, just the statement, science is the only, you know, reliable knowledge is a philosophical presupposition. You can't prove that in a lab. Yeah. It's a dogma. That's right. Talk about that word. We hate, we, we're allergic to the word dogma in our culture. I think, <laughs> have you noticed that in 2023 yeah. where yeah, people don't like that word dogma?
0: Yeah. But the idea that dogma is something to be avoided is itself a dogma. That's uh, right. It's something you can't escape. Um, everyone has be- core beliefs and ideas and operating assumptions, presuppositions, and we work off them. And it's often hard to convince someone that they have them, especially Mm. if they haven't been self-reflective, but as the more, uh, the the good scientist, the greatest scientists have been aware of their presuppositions, biases, uh, some of their motivations, which is why they lead to, you know, they try and do blind studies to try to eliminate as much as they can. Some of those factors that might affect the the outcome of the study. Um so yeah, we all have them. And uh what we have to do as Christians is to think through like what are the core values, why, how did this whole religion get started? I, I say we got to go back to the very beginning. I mean Moses is at the burning bush and he doesn't say um you know he, he does say to God, they're not gonna believe me um when I go and tell them that I've just been speaking to God. What am I going to tell him? I was just talking to a bush. This is going to, it's not going to go over well. Mm-hmm. Um, so God says, I'll give you signs and there'll That's be right. external signs that confirm the truth of the word. Well, that is the same kind of thing. It happens with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, you know, God says to Moses, when Pharaoh says, prove this, you shall give him proof. So that it's always external confirmation. Nowhere does God say to Moses, I will give them a spiritual sixth sense in their heart. They'll feel that it's true. They'll just know it. It's always something external to the word, and that's the history of Jewish prophets, and that's what the New Testament is doing everywhere. They're saying these things that we've seen with our eyes matched what was declared 700 years ago.
1: That's right. And even in the Bible itself, um, miracles and specifically the resurrection are referred to as signs. Hebrews 2.4 tells us that these signs and wonders and various miracles are God's way of bearing witness to salvation that Jesus brought. Essentially, they serve as evidence to confirm the message. Um, I think, and I'd be curious to know how you answer this question, one very common question that I get from, especially from young people, is you know we read the book of Acts and we see all of these miracles happening, why don't we see all those miracles happening today? And the way I try to, you know, frame that question is like, first of all, God can do a miracle anytime he wants he wants to. So we're not saying God doesn't do miracles anymore. Um he can do one anytime anytime he wants to, of course. But if if we see miracles constantly every day, then it almost undermines the definition of a miracle. A miracle is, yeah. is a very unique event. And if they happen, like, if you just become a Christian and all of a sudden you can perform miracles and every, every Christian can, then miracles are no longer special. They're no longer miracles. And also, yep. I think if we look throughout Scripture, you know, we see miracles sort of clustered around the, the writing of Scripture and, and serving as this type of sign to confirm the message that's being brought. How, how yep. would you think through that question?
0: Somebody asked John Calvin that during the time of the Reformation, because the, the Catholic church at the time of the Reformation, you know, they had all this belief in, uh, you know, the kind of Catholic miracles, weeping statues and uh, various uh, kinds of events that prove God's new outpouring of this or that. Um, and they said, so, so you, you're you leading this new Reformation movement. Where are your miracles? And Calvin said, well, they're right there in the book of Acts. <laughs> Yes, that's and I love right. that answer. Yeah, um, it's like this is the what the church was built on. The church was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and the uh, the prophets and the apostles then go and build churches. But they don't have any any qualifications for to to sort of ordain new prophets and apostles. They're ordaining elders and deacons, um, the, yeah. the regular church ministry is more like the uh, reflective ministry of what has been already been deposited. What was, you know, so you had the prophetic sunlight, but now deacons and elders are sort of reflective of what was already deposited. And that became inscripturated. So I do think that's actually hinted at in texts like Zechariah and Daniel. Daniel's lines are, uh, when the Messiah comes, we will do away with uh, vision and prophecy and the temple will be destroyed, and um, the, the anointed one will be cut off. So you have this sort of uh, language in the Bible itself that this, uh, the miracles that help attest prophets is a temporary thing that's being set up in order for us to understand the supernatural character of the Bible itself, but it's not something that's going to continue forever.
1: Right, right, and um, even among, I think, where you know, there's of course secondary issue debates over the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit versus the cessation of Mm -hmm. the gifts of the Spirit, and even within both camps, nobody's saying that God can't perform a miracle, that God can't heal somebody. Growing up charismatic, I was always under the impression that cessationists thought God doesn't heal anymore, he doesn't do any of these things, and then when I realized, like, actually, we're a lot closer together than we think, Um, but I think this is this is another reason it's really important to understand. things properly because we have a lot of young people walking around thinking, man, if I'm not having this really, you know, uh, spiritually, uh, you know, euphoric experience with God every day. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. If I'm not raising people up out of wheelchairs, maybe I'm not really a Christian. And I, I think that it was actually kind of a relief to me to learn the context of all of these things that, you know, it's not that God doesn't do miracles, not that he can't, but we shouldn't expect the same, you know, sort of burst of miracles we see in Acts. In fact, there's plenty of times throughout scripture where there's Periods of hundreds of years where there's no miracle recorded. Right, um, it's not the you know it's not the norm that that was sort of a, a special thing for the apostles to to uh, sort of bear witness to the message. In fact, Hebrews two four uh, says at the same time God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will, and it's talking about. Um, paying attention to what you've heard, so you will not drift away from it, and it's about the message that was given, that that confirms. Now, I, I'm I'm just thinking, you know, one of the pushbacks that somebody might say to to what we're saying here today is, uh, and I've actually encountered this when I've taught about faith. I'll, I'll inevitably have a Christian bring up Hebrews eleven one, which says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So if, you know, faith is the evidence of things not seen, you could almost think, that this is saying, like you need to believe blindly. You you know it, yeah. you don't see and you just believe anyway. So help us understand uh, that verse and is that teaching? Is that kind of undoing everything we've talked about on this
0: podcast? That today? is a great question because one of the things that I find as I ask uh, you know contemporary Christians to define faith, that language from Hebrews eleven comes up almost every other uh, in the in the language of every other response. Um, and it's usually the King James Version. Faith is the substance of things not seen. Um, and so what I try to do is sort of let's let's do the deep dive. I do it in the document that you're giving away. What is faith? Um, and I've done it on my podcast. And what I find is that that word, um, the substance, is actually uh, when, you, when I looked at the way that word was used um, in the first century and by Greek writers, biblical and um, and otherwise. It actually is, uh, it was It was referring to a kind of um, like a, a documentary evidence. It was the kind of thing that you would need to do to give someone if you wanted to have proof that you had uh, the, the land that you owned. It was mm-hmm. a title deed. So that word in Greek is, is best defined. And then I do this by looking at various lexicons. It's faith is the title deed. Of things not seen. And if you look at what the author of Hebrews does throughout that entire chapter, he's thinking about the effect of faith. The effect of faith gets you to the New Jerusalem. And that's why it's something that can't be seen. The New Jerusalem, heaven, our reward, the eternal Sabbath, it's something that's happening tomorrow or the next day or some time off in the future. And no one can see the future. And so there's an evidence, there, there's an element of, of not seeing. In a lot of things we trust, we can't see what the financial advisor will do for us. We can't see the babysitter when she's gone. So, the, so but trust has to get us there. But what I'm saying is that you certainly don't want to think it think of it as a a spiritual sixth sense or believing on something without evidence. It's not visual evidence. But mm-hmm. um, and one of the I think really important test texts that help us to see this is the doubting Thomas scene in John 20, where Thomas says, "I'm look, I'm not going to believe on the word of what all you guys are saying, all these other apostles. I'm not, yeah. I, I want to see it for myself. So he wanted, he was like, you know, Missourian, I, I just show me state, show me with, show me, I want to see it myself. And Jesus eventually, when he does appear, says, you know, touch me, see me. And he says, my Lord and my God, famously. But then Jesus says, blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds a little bit to us because we have this presupposition about blind faith that seems to match that. But when, when you actually look at the next verse, John says, these are written so that you may believe. In other words, John is collecting all the eyewitness testimony, collecting it into a basically a written deposition of mm-hmm. all the witnesses, including the witness of you know the prophets, Jesus himself saying in John 5, these are written about me, Moses and the prophets. Um, so he, this is all the material, all the eyewitnesses, all that they saw, the mir- Nicodemus himself, you know, who, who can, no one can do these things unless God is with him, the signs that he performed. So it's, it's a collected deposition recording all that had happened. So this is how faith comes to us. Jesus is not going to appear to everyone in the world in the way he did to Thomas, but that all that Jesus did with all the disciples, eating fish in their presence, showing them his wounds over a period of 40 days. This is what Peter says in Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts. We were foreordained as witnesses, credible witnesses of all that he did in Jerusalem and Judea. And this is why he he, he has been attested. He uses this word attested later in Acts. That same word is translated proven. He has proven himself by many convincing proofs, Acts chapter one, verse three. Mm -hmm. And that's the heart of why we should believe this, because it's really true. And if it's not true, nobody should believe it.
1: Yeah, and maybe another pushback. Some that was good. Another pushback somebody might bring is actually something I kind of live in the tension of. So, like, I I want to bring this up as a legitimate pushback because I don't want to blow this off because it's something I live in the tension of, and that's where I came from having a faith that was very emotional, very, very real. Though it was not. I, I did not have blind faith. I I read the Bible my whole life. I trusted in the Lord. I loved Jesus. It wasn't just my parents' faith. I really loved the Lord and and did everything I could to live for him, to live according to his word. Not that it was all perfect my whole life, but it really wasn't until my faith crisis and my sort of rebuilding that my faith, it almost did a flip-flop where it was just almost like at the beginning, all intellectual. I just, I didn't want any of the emotion because I felt like that had so failed me yeah. when I encountered skeptical arguments. And so for a long time, it was just all, uh, you know, all intellectual and all reason. And then I think I balanced back out a little bit. But if I'm honest, I think I still suffer in that tension a little bit. Like, what does it look like to actually, when we see we have a relationship with Jesus, like how did the head and heart come together for those things? So, so maybe the pushback might be if somebody might say, well, I'm concerned about maybe investigating the intellectual side. I'm concerned about leaning too heavy on reason because I don't want to lose the the relational aspect. How can we keep those things in tension?
0: It's a great question. And I think uh, for me, the person who helps me the best with this is a thinker at the turn of the 20th century uh Jay Gresham Machen about 100 years ago now he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism mm-hmm. which uh if if any of your fans are uh fans of your book uh the Progressive Gospel uh, that's not the right another title another gospel yeah another gospel, another another gospel, gospel yeah. Yeah. yeah um they they should go back and look at a similar book written 100 years earlier by Jay right. Gresham Machen Christianity and Liberalism now yes he says in in some of his writings he talks about the fact that uh, we think about dogma in this sort of academic and it's just, you know, thinking through the theology, all this stuff, it's academic and intellectual stuff. He says, no, think about it. Like, what do you, what do you know about a friend? You, you think about relationships. So what, what do you, all of your, your deepest relationships with a friend are rooted in what you know, and your long history with that friend. And the same should be true of our relationship with God. If you think about the Psalms and how they're written, um, it's all about what he has done in the history of redemption throughout, through the Exodus and and beyond all this great information, this dogmatic content, which, ex, which helps us to sort of, this is the God that I worship. And it's, yes, a lot of it is head knowledge, but you can't just, you can't sort of only have a, you can't rip head knowledge and heart knowledge. We, the heart clings to that, which we have grown to trust. And we've seen in our own personal relationships that, you know, those people who have been there for us and who've um, been a part of our lives and they've said things that were meaningful or funny, or they've done things that were trustworthy or untrustworthy. That's all Machen says dogma that we, that we use to sort of build up this, uh, this mental map. And so I don't think that it, using that category, I think that can help us to not overintellectualize and sort of think philosophically about the information of the faith. If you look at the apostles, they're always and everywhere uh, talking about proof and arguments and reasons, and uh, but we shouldn't think about that as a as a kind of we we should be careful not to turn all theology into sort of a a lecture. That's mm-hmm. a, certainly a danger or it's all stuff that you have to do in your, you know, as you're reading, um, you know, classic books from 1700 years ago, there's more to, it's not more than just knowledge, right? Yeah. Cause that could be the faith of demons. Right. Right. Um, so it's a knowledge that we, we have good evidence is true. That's knowledge and ascent, but there's also that trust component where it's a living faith, just like when you have a babysitter you actually trust your child with him you're going to trust your life to this god who has revealed himself and proven himself and it's a living and vibrant faith that gets you through um, it, through prayer through community uh, through you know attending to the word listening to sermons uh, all it, there's a there's a bigger part of this than just knowledge and information
1: Well, I want to thank my guest, Shane Rosenthal. Don't forget to subscribe to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Take a look at the free resource we have in the description. And if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. Click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms, go on over, uh, leave a, a rating and a review if you like the podcast, and share this on social media. Share it with your friends. Anything you can do to help us get the word out is so helpful. And, you know, if you were interested, in learning more about the kinds of topics that we discussed on today's podcast, I recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary. People are always asking me, where's a good place to go to seminary? What's something we can recommend wholeheartedly? Well, I wholeheartedly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary. I'm currently a student there myself. I'm learning so much. It is helping equip me for my ministry uh, more than I can even express. So if you're looking for higher education options, maybe you want to get a master's degree, a PhD, go to ses.edu. You can download a free ebook there and check out what SES has to offer. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.